Hello. Hola. Hello. Ni hao. Bonjour. Hi. Buenos dias. Guten tag. G'day. Welcome to the Husida Podcast, a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Jimmy Young. I'm the host and producer of this month's episode. And I want to begin with a question. What gives you anxiety? For some, it might be learning a new technology, participating in a group project, giving a presentation. But for others, it might just be going to the store or stepping outside or hearing some sounds related to a traumatic event that triggers a panic attack. Whatever it might be, I think you'll find this month's episode incredibly interesting. I interviewed Dr. Erica Nason and Dr. Mark Trahan about their article, Virtual Treatment for Veteran Social Anxiety Disorder, a comparison of 360-degree video and 3D virtual reality. Dr. Erica Nason is a clinical psychologist and an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at Texas State University, San Marcos. At Texas State University, she leads a trauma lab that researches risk factors for trauma exposure, strategies for reducing rates of sexual victimization on college campuses, and evaluates approaches to improving the effectiveness of interventions for PTSD, anxiety, and other stress-related disorders. She received her PhD from the University of New Mexico, and prior to her current position, she completed a postdoctoral fellowship with the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio through the South Texas Research Organizational Network Guiding Studies on Trauma and Resilience, or Strong Star. This is a multidisciplinary and multi-institutional research consortium dedicated to developing and studying trauma and other combat-related disorders. Throughout her career, she's had the opportunity to work on large randomized control trials with investigators across the country who have been leaders in studying PTSD and treatment outcomes. In addition to her research, Dr. Nason has received extensive training in gold standard cognitive behavioral treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, alcohol use disorder, and suicide prevention. She has addressed risky behaviors and adverse events such as acute alcohol intoxication, suicidality, and negative consequences associated with intervention in both clinical and research settings. Her co-author, Dr. Mark Trahan, is a licensed clinical social worker and has been an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at Texas State University since 2015. Dr. Trahan holds an MSW and a PhD from the University of Houston and an undergraduate degree from the University of Texas at Austin. Prior to his academic appointment, Dr. Trahan provided social work services with intimate partnerships, addiction, adolescence, and trauma. Dr. Trahan's research interests include fathering engagement and the use of technology, specifically virtual reality and augmented reality, to enhance paternal and social self-efficacy. Furthermore, his clinical and research background provide expertise in evaluation of clinical interventions with military, incarcerated, and low-income fathers. Dr. Trahan teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in social work direct practice, including chemical dependency and individual, couples, family, and group interventions. This interview was held over Zoom, and thankfully we had limited tech disruptions. We begin with just a basic background around social anxiety, and I thought it would be good to provide just some definitions for some of the terms that we use throughout the interview, in case you might not know them. This includes PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. We also talk about VR or virtual reality 
and 360 degree video, which is a technology that allows a user, or that is to say someone that's using video-based technology to experiment with their surroundings, to be immersed in a situation or experience using goggles, a mobile phone, or some related technology that relays video to you in a way that allows you to look around the setting that you're immersed in. There's a key difference between 360-degree video and virtual reality, where 360-degree video, you're kind of a passive observer in the experience, and with virtual reality, you can make more active choices or decisions about how you progress through the experience. We talk a bit more in detail about this later on, but if you've ever played a role-playing video game or been on a ride that uses video, then you'll kind of get the point. Dr. Nason actually gives a really good example of these two technologies being like going to an IMAX movie theater. <laughs> I mean, who remembers going to the movies, right? But maybe I digress a bit here. So going to an IMAX movie theater can be similar to 360 degree video and playing a 3D video game is more like virtual reality. So we talk a little bit about this and some of the challenges and also opportunities of this technology and how social workers and human service providers can prepare for this technology in the future. But this episode is not just focused on the technology side of VR. We also talk about exposure therapy and the process of recalibrating a fear response that's become too reactive. Virtual reality and 360-degree video provide a different modality to the exposure intervention approach, beginning with low to moderate to high anxiety-invoking situations. And one of the things I found most fascinating during our conversation about this approach and using this technology was how it can allow for a tailored individual approach to help individuals overcome their challenges associated with anxiety and also the potential to take some form of this intervention home with the client or the consumer via a mobile app to engage in treatment on their own and then follow up with their therapist. This technology is coming. This could also be really interesting given that the research shows some promising results with individuals who consistently engage in exposure therapy. They see a reduction in their overall anxiety symptoms over time. Now this study, their population focused on veterans, but I think it's important to consider the application of this treatment and this modality with other populations as well. So as you listen, think about how this technology and this treatment intervention might work with other individuals experiencing various challenges with anxiety. So I hope you really enjoy listening and let's jump into the podcast. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me on the podcast today. We have Dr. Erica Nason and Dr. Mark Trahan from Texas State University, San Marcos School of Social Work. And we're excited to be talking to them today about their recent article from, well, fairly recent, from the Journal of Technology and Human Services. And this is titled Virtual Treatment for Veteran Social Anxiety Disorder, a Comparison of 360 Degree Video and 3D Virtual Reality. So again, Dr. Nason, Dr. Trahan, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm happy to be here today. Great. Thank you for your welcome. So I, I want to start out by saying there are a lot of things happening in the world today with this pandemic and uh, COVID-19, uh, people quarantining, a lot of civil and social unrest. It seems like this is a time where social anxiety may be spiking through the roof. I was wondering if maybe we could start a little bit there if with some background to kind of set the stage for then launching into some of uh, the questions I have about the article. I think the question about what happens to social anxiety in the coming months and years is an important one because kind of what, what happens after our current circumstances, right? We're all 
currently isolated in COVID-19 quarantines or quarantine pods. And, um, you know, experts in anxiety disorders generally agree that avoidance is one of the key mechanisms in in maintaining and developing these types of symptoms. And so we're going to have a lot of individuals who may have had a propensity for social anxiety disorder or may have had low levels of symptoms, but we're still functioning to some degree on campus or in their day-to-day life because they they were kind of forced to expose themselves to these fear-induced um, situations like the classroom or like walking across the quad. Um, and I think, you know, we can anticipate and cross our fingers that in the coming months, some of this avoidance will not be reinforced in the same way, right? So classes will start moving back onto campuses again. Mm-hmm. Students might not have these opportunities to be avoiding the real life environments in the same way. And so, so I suspect, you know, we'll have to see what the research ends up looking like when we kind of are able to look backwards and see what the prevalence rates look like following the pandemic and things like that. No, I think um, that's going to be incredibly interesting. And also why I'm so glad to talk to you guys about this today, because uh, I think there is some good uh, utility from just VR treatments and things in general. But what was some of the background related to this project? So this particular project started, and I'll start with some of the history uh, of this project, because I think it's relevant to where we are now. And um, the the project started four years ago. um, And the uh, what we noticed, what we observed was that there were student veterans on our campus uh, that were really struggling with engaging in social scenarios. Specifically, uh, they couldn't navigate the social spaces around campus. They struggled with going into what we call the quad, which is a very populated, high-density walking area on campus. Um, they struggle with going inside of the restaurant, um, especially at mealtimes. Um, and so there was a lot of avoidance of these situations. And we noticed this uh, And this is really important because we have such a campus-friendly environment for veterans. We have lots of services on campus for veterans. Okay. And we really wanted to create uh, an intervention, something to help them with navigating these social spaces. Uh, So anecdotally, we'd heard these stories, uh, but we really wanted to put this into some sort of understanding in, in a research context from the ground up, understanding the basis of their complaints and really providing some intervention that was based on uh, real data and real research that we could conduct. So we started with asking them the question, tell us about the experience that you're having in these social situations. And uh, that was really just taking story about their experiences. And from those stories, we took themes, specific themes related to these social environments that potentially would cause them to feel anxious and overwhelmed and ultimately avoid those situations. And from those, from those interviews and from those stories, then we developed various prototypes or uh, different scenarios that we felt could be socially uh, stimulating for their anxiety and could cause them problems. Um, so in creating those environments, um, we, wanted to, we wanted to prototype them and ask them what their experiences were like in them before we made an assumption that the environment we created was the right one to help them address their social anxieties. Um, in doing that, once we did that uh, study, we and prototyped um, 
we, we, we used uh, 360 video in that process. Um, and so that's where this particular article uh, came about. Can we talk about that comparison a little bit while you also maybe give us some background about uh, the differences between virtual reality for uh, this type of treatment with social anxiety disorder and also the 360 degree video or 360 degree video versus uh, VR? So uh, VR is immersive uh, and so is 360, meaning that uh, you can be immersed into an environment that feels like you're actually uh, there. The difference is that 360 video is a, is, is a video. Uh, it's not immersive in the sense that it's 3D. It feels like you're actually in the environment. You can't, you can't really manipulate the environment using a, a 360 video. Um, whereas in 3D virtual reality, you can actually move things. You can, you can navigate within that context um, and move around. And uh, so it provides itself with a certain level of utility, um, but 360 should not be ignored as a potential possibility in terms of being a relevant intervention for various, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit, mm -hmm. but 360 video has its place. Um, there are just different uses for these two different uh, mechanisms and, and modalities. So I think uh, that that is the difference, is the ability to manipulate within the space. So in do you think ways, that there's, sorry, Dr. Nason. I was just gonna say in some ways it might be like the difference between going to an IMAX movie where the pictures are very realistic because they are pictures of real life scenarios but you can't interact versus playing a 3D video game where you can navigate and touch things and, and manipulate your environment. Okay, okay. So would you say that there's maybe one that is, I don't wanna say beneficial, but maybe preferred over the other? Well, I think that's one of the reasons that we wanted to do this particular paper was um, it's, I think it's still an empirical question. There, there hasn't been a lot of work really comparing the two. Theoretically, we can kind of talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages, mm -hmm. and we can talk about some of the things that we found in our um, relative, relatively small qualitative study. Um, so we had a, a total of 12 participants. Um, we would need kind of larger samples to really be able to say anything with large degrees of confidence. Um, but I think, you know, one of the advantages that, that Dr. Trahan was just getting at is the ability to kind of move through the environment and, and make decisions is certainly one of the advantages of um, the VR environments. Um, it, it allows people to have some agency. Um, logistically, 360 video is a little bit um, easier and, and less cost intensive to okay. develop. Is there anything you'd add? It, it sounds like there might be some pros and cons to both then. So when it comes to actually employing like the exposure therapy, uh, is there a benefit over one or the other types of technologies? Well, I think um, that's one of the areas that the, the jury's still out. We haven't really tested that from a therapeutic perspective. The, the paper that we wrote was really looking um, at just experiences kind of broadly with regard to engaging in the, in the stimuli. Um, we still need research that kind of compares individuals going through a therapeutic protocol um, in a 360 environment versus a virtual reality environment. 
Um, so, so I think that's still largely an open question. So circling back to your, you know, your original question, which was around COVID and social distancing and the rest of that, right? Let's say we apply these kinds of scenarios to anxiety interventions in VR for something related to um, sickness or illness, right? So in a 360 video landscape, you'd be able to expose someone to potential stimulation activities or video that would create some anxiety just about the exposure process but in a VR environment with 3D, you actually could have them make decisions about where they might move, what they might, how they might respond to those, uh, the, those scenarios. And, um, and there's also potential, you know, over time, we, you know, we know the technology continues to advance to interact mm -hmm. um, uh, with avatars and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's an extra level of uh, functionality, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use 360 video for the purpose of addressing anxiety. And uh, we know that just exposure in itself to situations that are socially stimulating can be very helpful for reducing anxiety, just the exposure process. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, and I just am sitting here thinking about, you know, in uh, less developed countries where they might not have some of the technological infrastructure that we have, for example, here in the U.S., or even in parts of the U.S. where maybe you don't have uh, really good broadband internet or those types of things, maybe the 360 video, or I'm thinking that uh, rural clinical therapist working with an individual can use maybe that 360 degree video without having to have all of that other uh, technology if maybe they don't have the capacity for some reason or another it might be a good thing. Well, there's lots of things that we're doing on our end to try to promote and push this technology. So since that particular um, uh, publication, uh, we've done a usability and feasibility study over the, on the intervention and produced a case study um, of our experiences. And one of the things we did was we moved it to a mobile-based application. Oh, wow. So what's great about VR now is that you can deliver it through a mobile phone and um, since your users don't actually have access to a video, they won't see what I'm holding up. But yeah. what I'm holding up is a plastic VR set of goggles that we use for our study. And this goggle is $30 bought uh, anywhere online. Um, it's not very expensive. And the other thing I have here is the mobile phone that we delivered the application on. And it is just your average everyday Android phone, which basically can be slid into the VR goggles like so closed up and for $30, you have a VR uh, intervention. Wow. Um, and so the ability, the, the ability to access this technology is, is uh, really progressing quickly. And even though 360 is probably easier to access if you're accessing it through Wi-Fi or broadband, there are limitations to 360 video too. And mm -hmm. for instance, um, when you're creating 360 videos, you have to be really, really, Conscience, conscious of a process called stitching, which is basically where you are stitching together the different videos that you're creating. And in many ways, it becomes a real technical challenge sometimes to make sure that those videos don't have uh, gaps when you're moving your head around the pictures. VR doesn't have that set of problems. It has a different set of problems, which we can talk about. Um, but, you know, there, as I say, I mean, there are pros and cons to both of these. And uh, so you shouldn't uh, limit yourself based on 
feeling that you know you don't have the capacity because of the technology. There is technology out there. It's moving yeah. quick. And the technology, as you said, is constantly evolving and, and changing and hopefully getting better. Uh, and we'll, we, we will definitely see that coming over the next many, many years. Uh, I, I'm interested now to kind of maybe dive a little bit deeper into the treatment itself, the exposure therapy and how you use that with the technology. So what exactly is exposure therapy or, or the type of exposure therapy that you used within your study? Yeah, so I, um, I think broadly, anxiety disorders and trauma-related disorders, a lot of our gold standard treatments include an exposure element. Um, and the idea is that it's a way of recalibrating a, a fear response that has essentially become um, too reactive, right? So over time, avoidance kind of increases the message that these are situations that are dangerous or that should be avoided for various reasons. And so by asking people to enter into those types of situations, over time, that anxiety um, comes down because, because people are learning that there's no danger necessarily inherently involved in going to a grocery store or going to class. Of course, every, every situation we're in has some level of risk, but, but in general, it's not a dangerous situation. Um, and so with the... 3, 3D and the 3D VR and the um, 360 video exposure, the idea is that um, it's just a different modality of delivering some of that exposure. So a lot of exposure-based um, assignments or, or activities and traditional um, treatment would involve both imaginal exposure, where you ask somebody to kind of imagine themselves in these types of feared situations. Is that like almost a, a guided meditation type of it thing? Absolutely can okay, be. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then also in vivo exposures. So these are um, set up kind of with the therapist and the client, um, usually in a stepped or progressive way, starting with kind of medium or low level uh, anxiety inducing situations and then increasing in difficulty over time and asking people to enter into those situations. So going to the grocery store long enough for their anxiety response to come down, um, going to a classroom situation, and you might over time kind of increase the difficulty even within the supermarket, right? So you might start with going early in the morning when nobody's there and then amp up to eventually going on like, Saturday at noon. Um, and so what the, what the virtual and the, the technology allows us to do is to provide another option, right? So instead of having to do these, these exposure exercises in person, mm -hmm. we can use the, um, the virtual environments to, to simulate that. Um, I think it's important. So, so Dr. Trahan was talking about, you know, being able to translate some of these mechanisms into mobile apps that people can take home with them. I think that's a really, really important element to where this could go because there is evidence in the literature that the more frequently people engage in exposure activities, the more quickly they experience a decrease in symptoms. And so people being able to use the, use the um, app to do this in the comfort of their own homes is likely to increase the ability, their ability or their willingness to do that. 
So um, could that be real fast to just go on that real quick? Um, could that be even, I mean, what Dr. Trahan was talking about with uh, using the goggles and the smartphone, the $30 option there, or could it be something else with just, uh, I mean, I've heard of like text messaging for on mobile applications as a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, check-ins and things like that. So what might it look like with the mobile application? Yeah, so I think it would it would likely look like having them engage in the full exposure experience. So kind of engage in the environment um, long enough again for their anxiety to kind of begin to decrease so that they start unlearning that this is a dangerous situation. Um, it could potentially also be a first step. So you could imagine a situation where maybe someone starts with some of the virtual environments because they're a little more controllable. Um, and then begin to move into in vivo types of exposure, right? They build confidence, they build um, efficacy, and, and they increase the difficulty that way. Wow, this is really interesting. So within your study, in looking at 360-degree video and also VR, uh, what really was your main objective then? What were you all looking at? Well, there were multiple questions. I mean, obviously... Um, you know, there are really important implications of an intervention like this being effective. And let me explain that a little bit. Um, if any of your listeners uh, are uh, former combat veterans and veterans now that are either active duty or, um, you know, they are uh, they're former active duty or, you know, they have some history um, in the military, they, they will know friends, if not themselves, uh, they will have experiences of wanting to avoid social scenarios, socially crowded scenarios, um, scenarios that create some uncertainty around the outcome of the situation. And, um, and so that is a very common experience um, with, with veterans. They, um, and when we when we wanted to engage in this study, we obviously overall, the research question was, could we, could we create an intervention that would be effective for reducing these, these social avoidance behaviors? Because mm-hmm. um, ultimately we know that when you avoid something, right, your anxiety goes up about it, not down. Yeah. So that's the reason acceptance and commitment therapy is so effective because having uh, you embracing and accepting that anxiety response actually reduces it over time, doesn't increase it. And so the idea is you know, we want to create an environment where people would be exposed to these, um, these anxiety-producing situations, and they would become accustomed to the anxiety and learn how to work with their own anxiety response around it. Um, and this is especially interesting for veterans who are taught over and over again that they should control their environment. Yeah. So when you're taught you should control the environment, you're taught you have to, you know, there are certain things you must do in scenarios in order to make sure you've controlled that environment. Their first response is to avoid the anxiety by trying to control the situation, right? So what we're doing is we are suggesting to them a very important reframe that by actually engaging with the, the environment, they're going to face their anxiety. Now, the, the implications of the, you know, the study are that any scenario, and by the way, research supports this, it's scenarios that create phobic anxiety, scenarios that create anxiety in general can be addressed through exposure because of this mechanism, right? This is the mechanism that reduces the anxiety is the exposure process. 
So the research question we were interested in uh, was not just about the anxiety and lowering it. We were also interested in what's the mechanism behind this? How does it, uh, what are the specific situations that increase this anxiety? How could we create those and um, how could we uh, prototype those situations with the veterans? And then ultimately we have then, we've kind of morphed into taking a look at some of the neuroconnectivity issues uh, that connect between the way in which our brain functions, sleep regulation, anxiety, and the exposure to these environments. So we've had multiple research questions in different phases sure. of this study. Uh, so that's really interesting. And I mean, you guys really, you focused on veterans within this particular study that we're kind of basing our conversation around. Um, but as you've been talking about some of the stimuli and the environment and some of those things that provoke the anxiety response, what are some examples of that or things that you use within your VR simulations? Yeah. So I think, uh, Dr. Trahan was just getting at some of these things with the idea of you know, wanting to control the environment. And so um, some of the qualitative pieces that the participants really spoke about when, when asked about some of the cues that increase their anxiety, I think were some of the elements that interfere with their ability to look for danger or to be hypervigilant, right? Um, so there were, there were a lot of audio cues that came out of this study. So hearing babies crying in the background, hearing car alarms go off, um, just kind of hearing the general mm -hmm. background noise associated with being in a grocery store. Um, some visual cues that were also really important for people. So um, the crowd density, so ability to kind of move around was something that came out of this. Um, certain cues that seemed to signal some danger. So people who might look in the simulation like they were maybe... Um, up to no good. So people peeking out of doorways or things like that um, were all kind of commonly, commonly noted by some of the participants in this study. Um, and I think those might be something that are a potential avenue for future research too, right? So you could potentially um, manipulate these environments to specifically evoke cues that are important to individual clients, right? Um, so that you can get basically the most hopefully most positive outcome of the experience. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Interesting. So can you take us for just like a quick example of what running a simulation might look like if I was to be one of your participants? Sure. Um, well, first we would uh, make sure we screen. So the most important thing is really in the front end, making sure that the intervention is appropriate to the people okay. that we're using it for, and as such, we know that there are some issues that can come up with safety related to virtual reality. And I know for your users, this might—I mean, for your listeners, this might be um, helpful to know that you know motion sickness has been identified as a potential problem related to VR usage. So um, you can there are uh, there are scales out there around motion sickness. Motion sickness in other environments like boats or cars or so on and so forth has been shown to be a predictor of cyber sickness, but it's not always the case. However, you should always screen for motion sickness because yeah. um, if someone can't use the intervention because they're getting nauseated, mm -hmm. uh, their heart their heart rates are escalating and they're getting sweaty palms, then you know it's not really a usable intervention. Yeah, so, I, I have to be honest really fast. I didn't really ever consider uh, motion sickness with VR. I mean, 
growing up, I, I went to the mall one time and did one of those like VR simulated roller coaster rides where it like bounces you around inside of a thing. No problem. Uh, but then as recently as a, I think this was two summers ago, I did a VR experience. You know, you go to like one of those gaming uh, places. We would call them an arcade back in the day, but I don't think they call them an arcade anymore, but they have virtual reality games and the headsets, you can, things you can put them on. And uh, the group I was with was like, here, put this wristband on your wrist. That's supposed to help with motion sickness. You know, it does these things. And I was like, okay, you know, I put it on, not really thinking like, is motion sickness really that big of a thing with VR? I yeah, it is. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Your body is not moving, but you're, you feel like you are. And yeah. In addition to that, there's a lot of conflict around those stimuli. So, you know, when you, the light is flashing, if it's not flashing at a rate uh, in which your mind can really keep up with the motion as you're moving your head, then that causes a conflict with the way that you're you're seeing and experiencing the environment. So there's, yes, there's there's lots of that that happens. So that's really important. So interesting. You know, we want people to be able to utilize it and not get sick. You know, yes, that's, that it doesn't good. work out too well if they get sick. Um but, you know, there's other things we screen for, too. We wanted to make sure that at the group of student veterans that we included, of course, they did have the symptoms we were looking for, like social anxiety. Um, we also included veterans that did have P a history of PTSD. Um, and that wasn't, you know, they didn't have to, but we included them. We did not include veterans that had a history of um, psychopathology in terms of having a history of um, any sort of hallucinations or delusions or any, any sort of advanced levels of acute um, psychopathy that would inhibit their ability to use the, use the technology. Um, and then we invited them into the lab. And of course, you know, for anybody that has social anxiety, going to meet people they don't know to get a new technology is anxiety producing, right? right. I mean, it's scary. And so when they showed up, we, and by the way, we had made contact with them in advance and introduced ourselves and certainly rolled out the red carpet. These are, um, you know, the, the, these are wonderful students and we wanted to make sure they knew they were welcomed. Um, and then um, we screened them to make sure in the lab uh, that it was going, again, that it was going to be an appropriate intervention for them. And then, um, you know, since the publication that you're referencing, um, we have had another usability and feasible, feasibility study where we actually took some baseline resting state data from these participants and, um, and then exposed them to the intervention and took some EEG and um, some heart rate and skin conductant uh, data and wow. really took a look at some of the neuromechanisms here. And, uh, and then we followed them. So uh, generally the, the best Kind of dose for this particular thing that's been identified in research. And by the way, the research is still out on dosage, but usually about 12 sessions, 10 to 12 sessions is about kind of the norm for exposure to these kinds of things. Okay. We, um, we decided we do 10 to, 10 to 12 sessions. We actually did uh, four weeks worth of sessions. We did three sessions per week. Okay. So we actually ended up having um, uh, 12 sessions overall. And, um, and we asked them to expose themselves to this environment for 12 to 15 minutes, three times a week. And uh, just in doing that, you know, just in doing that small amount, we saw considerable reductions in their social anxiety, um, in their PTSD symptoms, 
Um, and also we saw, we saw that they had higher sleep quality. Um, we saw increases in their neuroconnectivity, which is their ability to navigate anxiety producing situations based on their brain regions. Um, so we've, we've, had, we've had some positive results. We're not gonna say they're conclusive, Sure. Because we don't have a large enough sample yet to really say that that's conclusive. But so far, things look pretty good. Honestly, I feel like when you just said that sleep quality improved, that's got to be a huge factor. I mean, it's been a long time since uh, I wore a clinical hat, but uh, just working with a few of my clients that had some major anxiety disorders, getting them to have good quality sleep was an incredibly hard thing to do. It is. And we found that uh, we, we believe that the connectivity between a part of the brain that's the default mode network um, and the connection between that and the salience network. So salience network tells you whether or not there's danger, right? Default mode network helps you with your connectivity to be able to process that information. Uh, we found that there's an increase in that connectivity within that region, which is actually very nice because it shows that there's potential for that reduction of anxiety through that neuroconnectivity. So that's interesting. Exciting. Interesting. So the students that you worked with, ultimately you saw some good positive results, some improvements, some other things like that. Um, I'm wondering what maybe some limitations were that you saw with the technology, with the, the treatment specifically, the exposure therapy, or anything that maybe some of the uh, participants brought up after going through the experience. Yeah, so I think one of the things that participants noted that is a potential limitation is, um, you know, something we've already spoken a little bit about, which is just the propensity for some motion sickness or um, feeling like some of the technical glitches, like uh, Dr. Trahan was talking about stitching in the 360 video, that those elements were things that kind of decreased the immersiveness. Um, however, I think, you know, it's important to point out that even individuals who did experience some motion sickness or did note that the stitching kind of decreased the immersiveness still were, were reporting pretty low levels of motion sickness. So, so not to the level where, you know, it was aversive or they wanted to mm -hmm. end the, end the simulation, um, and that they still were able to find the, the simulation to be pretty immersive and to put them in like a real life mindset. Um, yeah, I really liked one of the quotes that you guys shared uh, from one of the participants in the study about how they said that they, they effectively felt like it was still a very immersive experience. But uh, a couple of them or one of them uh, mentioned how they felt like it still was a bit just like a game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in some ways that I think can be an advantage and a disadvantage. So um, one of the things that some of the participants also noted, um, and, and this gets to kind of that feasibility and usability piece, right? Um, even, if a, even if a treatment is fantastic at reducing symptoms, people still need to be willing to do it. Sure. Um, and our participants reported that they were very much willing to do it. They could see the applicability. They could understand pretty clearly how this could be connected to, you know, sometimes, sometimes when you explain exposure therapy, it sounds counterintuitive to people, right? You want me to go into these situations that make me fearful <laughs> right? to treat my fear. Um, but having, having gone through the simulation, I think they were able to make some of these connections and there were even comments about, you know, being able to kind of remind myself that I'm not really in that situation. And again, this might speak to, 
it's a way of decreasing the intensity of an initial exposure to, right? Making it more approachable, more acceptable for people to engage. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think there are certainly your, you know, believability is so important. I mean, you know, if you are told you're going to go into a space that's going to look like a grocery store and it doesn't look like a grocery store, then um, I think that the gaming element is actually an element that appeals more to, or it's more, uh, let's say, acceptable, potentially. Now, I can't support this. This is purely anecdotal, but, uh, but you know, more supported, more accepted by our younger like our younger uh, veterans, but, okay. um, you know, I mean, once you've been exposed to video gaming and you've, you've been in that environment, you're more likely to accept it as a, as a reality. Right. So, um, but having said that, we also had, we had um, a participant who was uh, an older woman in her, I think she was in her fifties and um She's a veteran with a history of social anxiety. And by the way, just as a side note to this, um, your, your listeners may not know this, but it social anxiety does not change without an intervention. So social anxiety is not something that goes away. Most mm-hmm. people think, think if I just sit with it and you know deal with it, it'll go away, but that has not been shown to be the case. So this is a participant that had had social anxiety for some time. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so um, she talked, talked about the experiences that she had within the environment and always said that it was extremely stimulating for her, regardless of the fact that it appeared like a game environment. Yeah. And so even if it is, even if there's a slight lack of realism there, there is still a visceral response that happens for these participants that is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you sh- we should never underestimate the power of these exposure uh, technologies in inducing these feelings. It is it is highly visceral for these uh, participants. And well, so- and I mean, truly, how real life like do you want it to be? Because if it is incredibly too realistic, maybe that would be too much of an exposure or antecedent to the exposure of what they're uh, worried about or, or anxious about and could have a really negative response. I don't know. Could you, have you ever seen or heard, read anything about those types of things happening with VR being too real? Well, I know that the most, one of the more um, well-known um, products on the market, it's, it's, I think it's actually commercialized now, I believe. I'm not positive, but it's called Brave Mind, and it was developed by Skip Rizzo out of the University of Southern California for the purpose of exposing veterans to combat scenarios. And we purposefully wanted to avoid combat scenarios um, because we had heard that veterans just didn't want to go back to combat. Yeah. Uh, but in doing his work, um, we we have heard you know such great they had such great outcomes there. Um, but there is this issue related to whether or not someone chooses to engage in the intervention because they don't want to face it. And so I don't want to diminish his work because he's done groundbreaking work in this area and has really been the pioneer of the field. The question is, you know, do you want to go into combat? Uh, And, you know, for some people, they're willing to do that and some people they're not. And so we have to find alternatives that provide a little less stimulation. And so sometimes maybe less stimulation can be better. And I think, I think to some extent there's a parallel. So, you know, we've been studying these exposure-based treatments 
in more traditional office-based therapies for much, much longer than we have virtual reality. Um, and I think there's maybe a guide there, right, where you, again, kind of titrate the intensity to the um, to the participant. Like we know from years of research on these, these more psychological kind of imaginal types of protocols um, that you don't want to flood your participant, right? That that's not the most effective way of, of treating the anxiety, that the stepped process really is, um, really is what we want to be shooting for. And so if somebody's kind of having an over-engagement with the stimuli, mm -hmm. maybe that's an indicator to back off, whether that be by kind of reducing the intensity by decreasing crowd density in the simulation yeah. or um, decreasing the types of questions that you're asking them while they're immersed in the, in the um, simulation. But I think there, there's potential for quite, quite high levels of um, simulation. I know that there are some virtual reality protocols out there that even include things like olfactory cues. They might kind of oh, wow. pump in like the smell of diesel or things like that. And again, often for these combat-based scenarios. Um, so I think, you know, what we're, what we've been doing doesn't reach that level of yeah. immersiveness, but you know, um, there's a me, whole range. It reminds me of the uh, ride at Disneyland, uh, Soaring, oh, Soarin'. I can't remember what they call it now, Soarin', but you're strapped in to a chair, but it's inside and you have this massive IMAX television screen and they lift you up off the ground and they blow air on you. And the same thing uh, with olfactory since they have like scents that come by <laughs> and you soar all around the world through the, you know, safari of Africa and all through, it's just, it was a really immersive experience and super fun. And so that might be, you know, a little over the top for exposure therapy, but uh, still it was really kind of an interesting experience for me. So yeah, one phenomenon I want to mention about that, that's a great point. Um, uh, is that we, we found that there were some people that would find places in the grocery store that were safe so that they could go and escape for a little while. And uh, there was one aisle, like back in the back of the grocery store, we didn't have very many people. And actually there was nobody on that aisle. And they would go there for just to kind of relax and, and, uh, and found that that was a safe location. And so uh, providing something like that in a VR application, I think, is a good idea. It gives place, oh, yeah. gives gives the participant some control, mm -hmm. and that control is really important. You're basically rebuilding a sense of control within environments by exposing them, and so uh, we found that's it. That that could be a really important part of providing these kinds of interventions too. Yeah, you also don't have to use um, the virtual reality alone, right? We can also be concurrently working on different types of psychological coping mechanisms that people can utilize while they're in the, while they're in the simulation, whether that's breathing exercises or cognitive exercises. Um, you know, it, it's not necessarily like throwing them into their yeah. most feared scenario and not, not being there to support them. Yeah, what was that show? The worst, like you put your worst fear, and they would throw. Oh, you Fear Factor. Fear Factor, yeah, Fear <laughs> right. Factor. Throw you into you a big to... canister of spiders or whatever, right? Or you know, walk across this pool that's infested with crocodiles and sharks and everything yeah. else. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think there is so much potential for VR exposure therapy and these types of things. But what I really like and what I've been hearing a little bit in our conversation is the ability to really tailor 
a specific intervention to an individual, mm -hmm. which is huge for thinking about uh, having the best possible outcomes or uh, thinking about, you know, in social work, in, in uh, social work practice, we often are assessing our clients. We're constantly looking at how can we continue to improve uh, the therapeutic approach or intervention or whatever it is that we're doing with them in order to make, help them get to where they want to be. And so I really see that opportunity there with this type of treatment modality with VR and exposure therapy. And that's really promising in my opinion. It is. Now there's a, there's a price that comes with that, with being able to tailor <laughs> and it's called time. True. Uh, it's the time to be able to reprogram. Uh, one of the cool things about this intervention uh, at, our, you know, at our university was that it was designed uh, by computer science students. Oh, wow. We did not use heavy hitters in the industry to design this. And we basically uh, used a ground up approach for developing it. Um, so, you know, in many ways, that was really helpful because we got to design the grocery store. We got to say exactly mm -hmm. what we wanted. If we didn't like it, we got to change it. Right. And it took time. Um, and it took a little bit of work. But uh, I think when you're talking about specific populations and things that could create anxiety for specific groups, it does allow you to create the intervention based on the, the group you're trying to work with. And that's, that, that's, that is really nice. Wow. So what's next then for VR or 360 degree video and exposure therapy? Where do you think this technology and this approach is headed? Well, like every good university faculty member, the next step always revolves around money. <laughs> so, uh, but we, uh, you know, we basically took some data on this intervention and we found that it was usable and acceptable, but we had to cut our study short because of COVID. So uh, we were not able to take as much data as we wanted to. Kind of our next step is really looking at the, the bio data, the heart rate, uh, skin conductance. So what we're what we're fantasizing about here is a a, a, a watch. You know, there are some very fancy uh, watches on the market that yeah. can allow you to to collect heart rate monitor data and, uh, and um, even galvanic skin response. So what we'd like to do is have these veterans uh, wear this technology for a, for a couple of uh, weeks, maybe even a month before we do the intervention, and that way we can actually use um, data around the locations that they go to and how that stimulates some of these, uh, this, this biofeedback. Yeah. And we can use that to then incorporate that into the intervention. So we can actually address some of that as a part of the intervention. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's the next step uh, is developing uh, more ways to collect the information outside of the exposure mm -hmm. so that we can continue to perfect the exposure in a way that's really effective. Yeah, I think we've only begun to scratch the surface in a lot of ways, right? So there's lots of work that still needs to be done, figuring out like how to best package an intervention like this, like what what goes into it, what, what are some of the targets? Um, and then I think a longer term goal is also comparing outcomes for this sort of an intervention to some of the gold standard mm -hmm. treatments that, that we already have that are more traditional in office, right? Are there kind of decision points that either would suggest a particular individual is a better candidate for one versus the other? Um, there are cost effectiveness questions. There are all sorts of questions there too. Yeah. And I got super interested in the baby crying. So there was this whole thing about the baby 
you know, these veterans would come in and they, you know, they were like, yeah, you know, everything was okay until that baby cried. And I was like, wow, that baby is such a stimulant. Like, and so I got really interested in that. And I was thinking, what is it about the baby crying that is so anxiety producing? And so now I'm thinking about um, using that as a basis of taking a look at veterans who parent and this stimulation experience of a baby crying and how that could impact um, you know, their, 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 neurolo- their neurological responses to, yeah. to parenting. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many ways we could take this, but I think you know, maintaining some loyalty to the core of this, mm-hmm. really want to make sure that this intervention works well for veterans um, and making sure that it's, um, it's usable. I mean, we want it out there. We're social workers. We like to we like for intervention to be usable. We don't want to just sit in a university somewhere. So exactly. how do we make that happen? You know? well, and I guess that kind of leads into one of my last questions here and thinking about, um, is there applicability for this type of an intervention with just the general public? And how might social workers or human service agencies prepare for using this type of technology in the future? I can't wait to hear Dr. Nason's answer on this. <laughs> I mean, as far as the, is there applicability for general um, for general populations? Absolutely. You know, if we think about psychopathology on a spectrum, it's not something, you know, social anxiety is something that all of us experience at one time or another, regardless of whether we have a diagnosable set of symptoms. Um, so from the perspective of, you know, job training and, and training people to respond to anxiety produce or inducing scenarios like a job interview, right? This would be a great opportunity to have people be able to engage in a um, simulated interaction, potentially receive feedback on their performance and try again, right? It's, it's a way of shaping positive pro-social behaviors Um, I have done a lot of work in um, reducing sexual violence, especially on on college campuses. And Mm -hmm. I have some interest in using virtual reality as a way of kind of helping students to navigate issues of identifying consent and these types of things. Um, So I, I, again, I think kind of the sky's the limit and we've really only scratched the surface of some of the questions that we can use virtual reality to look at. Wow. So what do you think? How could agencies prepare for this then? That was the second part of the question. I'm always kind of thinking now, ever since talking with Dr. Nissen about, you know, futurist futurist and foresight practice, which was uh, the last podcast episode, I'm always thinking now way down the future and down the line. So we have an interdisciplinary team of researchers here, and I I did want to uh, note that uh, Dr. Scott Smith, Dr. Grayson Lawrence, Dr. Vangelis Metzis, Dr. Dan Tamir, uh, Dr. Richard Morley. Um, we, have a, we have a wealth of folks that have participated on these projects with us and have really, uh, you know, everybody has pitched in. Um, but uh, I want to suggest there, there is some projects that are in the works with other faculty here. One is a response to emergency situations uh, you know, basically EMS showing up and being able to assess a situation that's an emergency using VR. Um, the VR applications around training um, are really, really positive. So using VR as an application for training 
is also something that could be very effective in agencies. In terms of doing mental health work, for those people that are out there doing mental health work, um, th th you shouldn't be afraid of this. Uh, this is coming, it's gonna happen, and it's gonna be usable at a, at a, in a way um, that will not take away social workers' jobs. Um, it, won't, it, it won't replace social work. Social work still has a place around uh, managing, integrating, uh, navigating, and working with these technologies. Um, and these technologies offer a supplement to some of the traditional interventions. So you should, you don't, I wouldn't be afraid of it. I'm a private, I practiced for years before I went into academia mm -hmm. and I love clinical work. It's my passion. I still see a couple of clients a week just to keep my feet wet. And so I'm, I'm a clinician at heart. And I just want you to know that, you know, there's no reason to be afraid that you can't use these um, provided that as our code of ethics says, you should have the right training. Sure. And that means you should have training in exposure therapies. You should also have training in understanding VR and some of the limitations of that mm -hmm. um, related to motion sickness, some of the issues that can come up in the process, how to do confidentiality. That's a really important question uh, because you have to, if you're going to record the data, you have to keep it secure. You have to make sure that you're in HIPAA compliance with all of that. So there are some issues, um, and unfortunately, uh, there is not a whole lot of training out there. So some of that you'd have to do on your own. You'd have to go and find your own readings. You'd have to uh, you'd have to learn about it. There's a few people out there that are practicing, and you you should get together with them and connect. Um, but it's coming, and uh, all that to say that the price, the accessibility, um, and the efficacy of it shows that it's going to be it's going to be on the market, and it will be available to you. So. No, it sounds like there's a ton of promise here with this technology and uh, this this being a therapeutic approach. And so I would agree with you. Yeah, I don't think we should be afraid of it as well either. But I'm glad that you brought up some of those things that because uh, I can hear it all the time with other social workers and human service providers about concerns with technology and ethics and those things, which honestly, we could have a whole nother podcast <laughs> just on that. So maybe we'll have to have you back on again. But Thank you again, Dr. Nason and Dr. Trahan. Really appreciate you joining me on the Husita podcast today. Yeah, thanks, thanks again for having us. Yep, absolutely. Take care. The Husita podcast is a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, please connect with us on our website at www.husita.org, on Twitter at husita.org, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash org. Be sure to rate the podcast and share it with your networks to help us create a world where information technology is used to promote the social good and human well-being. My name is Jimmy Young. You can also connect with me on Twitter at JimmySW. Thanks for listening to the podcast.